opportunity for them to be able to do that. Um, I told him in staff meeting, I was like, I actually can't remember what I said, but he said he was going down there to visit his grandkids. I said, I'm happy for you. And uh, I, I was kind of joking, but not really. But really, I, I am, I'm glad that he's able to take off and, um, and go and visit his grandkids and be with them. Uh, great opportunity. Uh, Rick and I were talking before the service, and uh, we uh, came to the conclusion that Pastor Scott tried to dip out on all the conversations he didn't want to talk about. Uh, so, <laughs> so in this uh, letter, um, it is talking about um, love and the manipulation of love that the enemy is trying to do. Uh, and it's really, um, uh, as, as we get into this, I want to preface this with the, the, the fact that I think it is hard for us to speak about love and comprehend love in the way that God intended it to be because our society is so far stuck in what this chapter or what this letter is talking about. Does that make sense? It's hard for us to verbalize it. And even if I say something in the way of, because we understand that God is love uh, and, and his, his idea of love is not uh, exactly what this world says that love is and what we're inundated with in, in novels and movies, TV shows and uh, politics and propaganda and all this kind of stuff uh, paints, paints a picture of love that is not what God intended. And so if, even for me to say, you know, God showed his love this way or in, he intends this to be love, it's, it's kind of twists our mind a little bit because we're so deep into this lie that the enemy is trying to, to come up with here. Um, so um, as we get into this, obviously, I'm open for um, questions, comments, suggestions, whatever. The less I have to talk, the better. Um, <laughs> I do appreciate the opportunity to speak to you guys. Uh, I, I know I don't get to uh, come in on, on the stage a lot, um, and so uh, it is nice being able to be up here and, and talk to you guys as the youth pastor of the church, um, which, by the way, all your students, are, if you have students in this room, it's hard to see everyone, are amazing. They, they really are. Uh, in fact, a lot of the students that uh, you know, I, I hear students go around to other students and be like, we have the best youth group in the world or whatever. And like students that have been to other churches and stuff like that and, and everything. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe you just don't know. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, really, I think we do have a great, uh, a great group and they are growing in the Lord and doing amazing things. And we have seen uh, miracles in the youth group. We have seen uh, the Holy Spirit move in amazing ways. And, uh, and so it really is uh, pretty awesome. Uh, we've seen students get saved this year and, and just new students that come to the youth group that their parents don't go to church and, and uh, you know, they, they don't really have any other connection other than the friends that, that already come here. Uh, and so that's really exciting for me. And uh, I don't get to tell you that very much. And some of you guys may be like, I don't actually know what goes on during the youth group. I think they just show up here and break stuff, you know. Um, that's not what happens all the time. <laughs> all right, so again, um, really... In this letter, um, I think it's very interesting right from the beginning um, that he talks about uh, Wormwood going to uh, college and understanding the routine of sexual temptation. Uh, and he says here in, in literally the first sentence, um, you have learned at college the routine technique of sexual temptation. And since for us spirits, this whole subject is one of considerable uh, tedium uh, though a necessary part of our training, I will pass over it. <laughs> but on the larger issues involved, I think uh, you have a good deal to learn. And so um, I think that's something that's incredible to understand here, and, and, and that kind of we've, we've talked about, you know, throughout some of the other letters and, and just the whole idea of this in general is the fact that, um, you know, our enemy uh, has been doing this for a very long time. And, and I would even say that they understand human behavior better than any of us could understand it. Um, and so in that reason, I think it's interesting that says when it comes to sexual temptation, this is something that they uh, almost like pass over because they understand it so well. They know the power of it. They understand that, that this is easy for us. It's, it's like, you know, everybody knows how to do it. Everybody knows how to use it and manipulate it and everything like that. Um, and, and really, at the end of the day, you know, this is a huge trap for us, um, for, for humanity, really, um, is sexual temptation. And, and it really is uh, a big subject. Uh, so uh, let's get into it. Um, does anybody have anything uh, from the first page here? First paragraph, first two paragraphs? Any comments? 
Right. Yeah. And, and here's something that came to my mind is uh, marriage really is a covenant. It's, it's almost a contract. Right. And it's not saying, um, you know, as long as I still feel this feeling, uh, we can keep going on this. It really is like a contractual obligation that you you enter into with somebody. Um, and 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 we have to see. And that's the way that scripture talks about, it. because in the Bible, it doesn't say that you like loving somebody in an affection in, in the way that the world talks about love, like the gushy emotional feeling. I think he he just he describes it as a uh, how's he say that in there, an emotional storm or something like that. Um I'm sure it'll come to me later. But anyways, uh, it doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that that's a requirement for marriage, right? It doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that you, you have to feel good enough in order to, to marry this person. And if that feeling is not there, you know, then, then it's not. Because what happens, what happens if, we, um, if we base our marriage off of feeling? I know Rick kind of talked about that a little bit. But, but ultimately, what happens if we base it off of whether or not we feel that love? <laughs> yes. <laughs> some days you're married and some you're not. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's an unstable foundation. And really, I mean, it's it's kind of the, the the same topic because a lot of this he's talking about sexual temptation, but really over overall, I think he's talking about the distortion of God's love in our own minds, right? In our own lives and everything like that, uh, and and he talks about that like like he says in that sentence that Rick read, persuading the humans that uh, curious and unusual uh, and usually shriveled experience that they call being in love, right? Uh, they're persuading them that that's the only respectable grounds for marriage. So if we can just get them to understand this is the only reason why you should be married, they won't understand the full purpose of what God has created in a marriage, and it will fail, and they will they will you know fall over when when the storms come, just like the scripture that talks about a house being built on the rock and, uh, or on the sand. Um, your foundation uh, really is important. And your relationship with Jesus, just like you know, the, the relationship between you and Jesus, the church, right, and Jesus, we are the bride of Christ. Um, in that same way, we need to be founded on that, on that foundation, right? And we need to understand a true foundation instead of fa- founding it on something that's going to um, fail. So I thought this was interesting, too, um, in that same, right after that paragraph, he writes, the whole philosophy of hell rests on the recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, and especially that oneself is not another self. My good is my good, and your good is yours. And so when it comes to, um, you know, sex as it's defined in, in the Bible within the, you know, with the covenant, the covenant of marriage, it's like, there's all of this relativism, and it's interesting that he wrote this so long ago because that's the way it is now. I mean, your morality is your morality. My morality is mine. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's really based on secular fundamentalism, and it's just a very, okay, there's just no absolutes. There's no morals. It's just whatever feels good for you. And it's interesting when you look at statistically, uh, you know, what groups and you know, how they feel about, you know, even evangelicals. I mean, I'm just going to narrow it down to that. Charismatics, evangelicals, people who call themselves Christians. 
the percentage of them that think that sex outside of the confines of the biblically defined marriage is okay, and it's not. And that's what he's saying right here. My good is my good, and your good is yours. It's just moral relativism. I think that's kind of interesting that he pointed that out so long ago, and yet, you know, here we are in the 21st century, and it, it just seems to be a problem that really plagues the church in particular. Yeah, we, we definitely live in a, in a world of self right now. Uh, what do I want or whatever? And, and even like we've gone through, I think we've gone through stages of this, you know, even in scripture, you probably see this. Um, you know, the Israelites obviously cared a lot about themselves instead of, you know, about God. And you just see this whole cycle over and over again. And so we see it with different things. Sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's this moral issue, and sometimes it could be this moral issue or whatever. Uh, my, my friend Zach, who, who was our speaker uh, for the Youth Fall Retreat, uh, came in early, and we had, had some time hanging out. Uh, he used to be another youth pastor in Utah, and we're good friends, and we were having this conversation. Um, we were having this conversation about this whole this whole idea of self, and, and we were talking about how worship music, kind of in, like, the early 2000s, uh, 2010, like, around that time, um, almost went through this phase where every worship song was about me. Every worship song was like, uh, you know, I need this or, or, or uh, give me this feeling or give this. And, and even that, I think that he talks about this later in the letter, talking about the feeling of church as well. In that same way, if we can just convince them that the feeling is what matters, then it's going to be a, a, a shaky foundation, right? And in the church, if we can get them to go to church because of the feeling, then when that feeling is not there, it's going to completely break their foundation, their house is going to crumble. And, and, and so uh, it's really important to, to understand that. And, and you know, I, I think that uh, worship music has kind of made that turnaround. And, and really, we have some amazing worship songs that have been coming out in the past 10, you know, 15 years or so. Uh, but there was a time there where it really was um, worship of self almost. And, and it's like we sit here in these congregations, we sing these songs and everything like that. And, and uh, we're, we're supposed to be here to praise God and, and glorify his name, lift his name higher. Um, but we're singing all these things about how can I feel better? How can I get what I want? Or, or I need this or I need that. Um, and, and it really does kind of go straight into this whole uh, idea of self. Um, yeah, and, and at the end of that paragraph, it says to, to be means to be in competition. Um, and, and I really do think that that is a, a, a selfish mindset. Uh, the whole competition of like, um, I need to be better. Um, uh, whatever you have, I need to have, or, or whatever. There's probably a, a thousand different ways that we can look at this, but um, but it's interesting that he summarizes all that as to be means to be in competition. Well, we see in 1960s, we see the beginning of that, if it feels good, do it. In other words, it's about what feels good to you, do it. There is no right, wrong, it's just about what you do. And we see that being here century, uh, decades before when... C.S. Lewis wrote this, the same kind of concept that the that they're talking about from the demon side. Yeah. Um, whenever um, all of this stuff with um, uh, gender decisions and, and all that kind of stuff really started to hype up, maybe that was probably five or six years ago when really it started coming in that conversation heavily of choosing your own gender, what's the difference between gender and sex, or how many genders are there, and all this, all these conversations that happen. Um, Liz and I were in a, a youth pastor mentoring program, um, and, and the mentor said to, said, to, said to us in the room that, that feelings are becoming the new facts of the 21st century. Um, and and it, it doesn't matter what actual facts are, because if you feel this, that's what it is. And that's where we run into this whole identity thing that's going on is because, again, your identity can't be based off of stuff like that. Because if it's based off of stuff like that, you're, you're, you're putting, especially with the younger kids, you're putting all of this, this identity in who you are, which is such a complex, large subject, all into one category of sexuality, which they're not even old enough to understand completely yet. And so you have all these young people that are completely falling apart and, and, and not knowing what to do with their lives and, and having total crises because I don't understand who I am because they don't actually understand what God created here and the intimacy and everything like that because the world keeps shouting at them saying, hey, this is where your identity is supposed to come from. You need to make sure you make this decision right now. Otherwise, you know, it, it's, you're not going to know or whatever. Uh, so it, it's really crazy, and, and that goes across a lot of different things, but feelings have, have become facts, uh, and that's, that's kind of a sad thing to see. Uh, so what's really happening is um, feeling are, becoming, are becoming facts because that's now how they are defined, 
So the real issue is that the enemy is redefining everything in our culture, and we're not fighting back against it. Uh, we're letting it happen, and therefore, once somebody makes a statement, well, this isn't that, this is really that, and if, you, if somebody will stand up and say, no, that isn't that, it has never been that, and just because you say it, that doesn't make it so, that's the issue today. And because the kids don't know any better, they, all they know is the definition that they learn of a word the first time. To them, that's what it is. And unless somebody is teaching them differently, what do you expect them to know? Yeah. Yeah, on, on the end of the second paragraph, he says this idea, after explaining this whole thing of like, well, the enemy, the Lord's uh, answer is either abstinence or uh, unmitigated monogamy. Um, and, and he talks about persuading the humans um, about making it based off of a feeling of love. It says, this idea is our parody of an idea that came from the enemy. And, and that really is the, the, the root of it, is the enemy twisting something, right? Because, because the, the easiest lies to believe are the ones that have some truth in them. And so I, I think the enemy does a, a crazy job of, of twisting those things and, and making it seem like something that is supposed to be, but it's not what God created. And, and just on that subject, um, if you are in this room and you're depending on schools or even me as the youth pastor of the church to teach your kids what, what real sexuality is and, um, and gender and, and your identity in Christ and, and stuff like that, when it comes to those things, you're doing it wrong. You need to, that is a conversation that you need to have with your kids. Uh, and, and it needs to start young, too. Uh, you, can, you can talk about this stuff without going into graphic detail, um, but, but it really does need to start at a, at a young age. Um, and it, it's definitely not, I, I've seen it before where parents kind of leave it up to, uh, the school system or, or just, you know, maybe they'll figure it out from their friends or whatever. Um, and, and that is, that is the absolute worst place for them to, for, for them to figure all this stuff out. They need godly parents that are going to teach them that sexuality is something that God created to help bind uh, the unity of, of a man and a woman, right? And it even creates even more unity, like he talks about later, uh, with family and everything like that. Um, and, and so these, these young children they, and kids, teenagers, whatever, you know, they need to understand, uh, especially when it comes to that time to have, have the talk and everything, they need to understand that that is, that is something that God created, and they need to be able to see God's perspective on it without it being twisted by this feeling of love. You know what I'm saying? Uh, really, it's very important to, uh, to do that. Um, you know, in the, in the youth group, every, every uh, February, we have a, uh, a relationship panel and talk about, you know, um, you know, I'm not having the talk with your kids, but um, <laughs> that's your job. <laughs> and uh, if anybody comes and asks questions afterwards, I'll tell them to talk to you. Um, but uh, we, we have this thing. Uh, where we talk about relationships and friendships and dating relationships and all this kind of stuff. And, and then um, we have a, a question and answer panel. They all get to put questions in a bucket and, and write them all out. And uh, so nobody knows exactly who asked the question or whatever. Um, and, uh, and we just pick from the questions and, and answer the, uh, there's a lot of stupid ones in there. Like, you know, what's your favorite Skittle or something, you know. Um, that's not really what we are talking about. But we try to answer really hard questions about this stuff on a biblical sense. Right, um, and and we've even had some uh, some situations where where it's it's kind of hard for some students to hear this because they've been in this filter that that the enemy has 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 put in their mind and the society and all this kind of stuff, and and had a kind of a hard time hearing some of the truth that comes from Scripture because the Bible is very offensive when it comes to the tricks and the parodies and perversions of what the enemy has taken from what God has done. You know, but I've always tried to do my best in, in youth service to not back away from what Scripture says and then also answer hard questions of, you know, you know, different kinds of things. Like, what if, what if uh, you know, I am attracted to the same sex? What if this happens? Or what if that, you know, whatever. Um, we answer those kind of questions in the youth group because I know that at school, they're not getting that, you know. And, and at, at, at their, you know, with some of their friends and if, you're, if your kids go to public schools or whatever, um, they're, they're not getting the, the biblical side of it, right, to balance what they're hearing in the world. Um, and so it's very important for me to, to, to push that on you guys and, and, and uh, hopefully... If you get, do have kids that age, the Lord blesses you in your time with that, but <laughs> uh, gives you wisdom and, and everything. But, um, you know, schools are, are, uh, are required to follow a lot of the stuff that the state is, is pushing 
the, the agendas that are being pushed. And, and, and your, your child actually has more, if they're in a public school, your child has more say in, in, in that stuff than you do. They have more power. If, you, if your kid goes to school and they say, I want to start being referred to as the other gender. I'm a boy. I want to start being referred to as a girl, and I want my teachers to call me this girl name or whatever. Um, the the teachers and the counselors and and they they really are held very tight, and they they kind of have to do what what it is that the child asks. Uh, even to the point where if the parent comes and calls the teacher or calls the principal, I mean, like they they are going to tell the parent, um, we cannot do that if your child asks to be called this, we have to call them that, right? And so that's a really, uh, that's a really frustrating and sad, and it, it really is hard to hear that kind of stuff. And so using that as an example, for those reasons, that's why it's so important to emphasize um, godly sexuality in your children's lives. Emphasize it strongly so that they understand, because they need to have a good argument against what everyone else is saying. Right? Because if, if this person is saying this and the other side of the argument is, well, I, I know my mom said it's wrong, but I don't know why, you know, they're going to have all these reasons why over on this side. Yes, Aiden. I think it's very interesting. Working in the school districts, and I say that because I work for a charter school and also the public schools, both of them, and um, the transgendered children have the worst cases of social anxiety. They're the ones who have to test in the hallway. They're the ones who... who, who um, need the medication, and it's going to implode one day. I mean, we can work around this or make the accommodations for them, but it's not truth. It's a horrible lie. It's a, and it, it amazes me how their parents go along with it. That's, I can't do anything about that, but it's going to implode one day. They're, they're going to have a, a horrible suicide rate one day among them as they grow older. Um, but in, in my experience, those are the children, the transgenders, who have the most emotional difficulties in classrooms, in my experience. Yeah, well, it's too much to carry. It is. Again, like I said, when you're, when you're building, when you're living in this upside-down world where, where you're, you're trying to base the entire identity of this child created by God on this one little thing, and that one little thing has been perverted and turned into a different story, it's too much to hold. It's too much to carry. And so... Um, it, it's really hard uh, to, to see that um, and do that. So um, on uh, page 94, I don't know if all books are the same pages. I know there's a few different iterations and versions, but uh, talking about the enemy's philosophy is nothing more nor less than one continued attempt to evade this very obvious truth. He aims uh, at a contradiction. There are to be many uh, yet somehow also one. And so here he's talking about the Trinity of God, but then he's also talking about a man and a woman becoming one, right? Um, and, and so he talks about this, this contradiction that, that God has between, you know, you can't be many and also one at the same time. And he says in this sentence, the good of one self is to be the good of another. This is impossibility. This impossibility he calls love. And so that's kind of giving us a definition of what God says is love. The good of oneself is to be the good of others, right? And even in the scripture where it says, you know, uh, men submit to your wives, it also says to submit to others as well before that even comes up, right? And so this whole, um, my, my life is not my own, uh, which is completely laid out for us by, by the way that Jesus died for us, right? Uh, this whole idea of my life is not my own, uh, what is mine is also yours, my good is your good as well, uh, this thing uh, is actually what God calls love, and it really is unity, right? It's bringing, bringing people together in unity, and, and that's, that's the love that, that God is, is calling out and providing for us, um, and, and it actually creates this amazing thing. Um, when we have that kind of love for people, when we have that, um, you know, I, I'm here to help you out. Because the whole, uh, when it's talking about the philosophy, the enemy's philosophy, the whole idea of this is how can I benefit myself and do this? So I'm going to do whatever I can in order to, to, to make myself better. You know, almost like uh, Darwinism, survival of the fittest, and, and all that kind of stuff, that mentality. Um, that's kind of the philosophy of the enemy. And so it goes completely against what, what, what the enemy is 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 trying to do uh, because it's bringing people together instead of tearing them apart, right? Uh, I, I, th I really do think that this really is uh, 
a conversation of unity. Um, and, and it says in Genesis that, uh, that uh, you know, for this reason, and, um, a man will leave his mother, mother and father and be, be united with his wife. Um, and, and the two will become one. Um, and so he, he kind of like uh, goes against this argument and tries to fight that a little bit here. Uh, does anybody have anything that, that stood out to them in that section or another section? I wonder if um, we should be looking at a little closer the concept of love from God's perspective. How does God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit function with one another in love and being one? And is the human race supposed to be modeling love in the same manner that the Trinity is exhibiting love one to another and toward his creation. Uh, there is coming a time that we know scripturally that the marriage supper of the Lamb where Jesus Christ marries the body of Christ. And I don't think that it has anything to do with sex. So are we and has Satan twisted what love is to be an absolute non-truth? Um, that's just a thought. Yeah, I think that's right on. Um, because I, I think that we have incredible uh, intimacy uh, available to us in our relationship with Jesus and God, right? And, and even with each other as the body of Christ, I think that we have the uh, ability to be very intimate with each other uh, outside of sex um, in, in the way that God created it to be. And again, like I said, it's hard for us to say things like that because we, it's so easy for us just to tag like, oh, he said intimacy, you know, it means this. Or he said love, or it means this, or whatever. But really, that, that closeness and that unity, I really do feel like is what the model of, of God's love is. Um, and, and I think that that's something that maybe nobody has the exact definition for, but, but man, that's close, you know, because, because he, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are close together in unity and one. Um, and, and that's what, kind of what he's, he's arguing against here. Uh, the, uh, what's his name? Screwtape. Anybody else have anything to add to that? Okay. So, um, sorry, I'm just trying to read my notes here. Okay, so, so that next paragraph under that, He's talking about the, uh, his real motive for fixing on sex as the method of reproduction among humans is only too apparent from uh, the use he made of it. Uh, and it's interesting here because they, he says, Screwtape says, sex might have been, from our point of view, quite innocent. It may have been merely one more mode in which a stronger self preyed upon a weaker, as it is indeed among the spiders, um, where the bride uh, concludes her nuptials by eating the groom. But in the humans, the enemy has uh, gratuitously, gratuitously, you know what it is, associated affection uh, between the parties with sexual desire. Uh, he has also made the, the, the offspring dependent on the parents and given the parents uh, an impulse so, uh, to support it, thus producing the family, which is like the organism, only worse, for the members are more distinct, yet also united in a more uh, consensuous and responsible way. The whole thing, in fact, turns out to be simply one more device for dragging in love. Uh, so, so sex and reproduction uh, as a means of love is, is what is frustrating screw tape in this, in this uh, moment and uh, in, in what he's talking about. And, and really, I think that that is, that is part of, um, because I don't think, like, um, what are you saying back there, um, Roy? Uh, where I, I, I'm, it's hard for me 
at least me, maybe you guys are better than me, but <laughs> it's hard for me to comprehend the intimacy with God when we also have, like, um, in my marriage intimacy, and, and, and it's hard to do that. And, and also, God created sex as a way to reproduce. And, and, uh, and then also, I, I believe that it's supposed to be in function um, a way to, to unite even closer with your spouse, right? And, and in that, um, you, you know, like, when uh, I, I, I used to do a lot of studies on addictions to pornography and statistics. I haven't seen any recent statistics on it because I really haven't, like, done current research on it. But, um, but you know, when, when people are addicted to pornography, when they, when they get done looking at pornography or doing whatever, um, the amount of dopamine that's released in the brain is similar to the amount that you would get from cocaine. Uh, it, it's highly addictive, Right. And, um, and and so for that reason, um, you know, that's that's also I think that kind of stuff goes in the category of what he was talking about at the beginning. Like we already understand these temptations like we know this stuff. But as far as this goes, the foundation of what love is, this is where you need to learn more. Right. Um, and, and all of that stuff, all of other se- sexual temptations and stuff like that is a, is a it's a dirty trap from the enemy to try to f- distort something that God created. And I, I do believe that that in order to reproduce, in order to create children and everything like that, God also created this feeling in there that is addictive so that you become addicted to the person. And, and, and maybe the addiction is the wrong word for that, but you become more and more united with your spouse. Um, Ricky, you have something to say? I think the challenge that we see with the world, and I deal with often with many people, is they equate sex to love. And that's where Satan gets it twisted. And that's where we see a lot of young people or people in general, they end up going in that path of, well, if you love me, then you'll have sex with me. Or, and they, because of various things that they've endured in their life, they, point, they put that, those two together instead of the fact that sex is born out of love and it creates a greater intimacy, as you were saying. Instead, they twist it and get it backwards. Yeah, right. Uh, and something I always said, uh, you know, with the teenagers or, you know, and encouraging people is that love is a choice, not a feeling, right? And when that feeling is gone, that's when it's most important to choose love. Um, and, and so we see that, but but it's out of marriage first. And we have this so backwards in, uh, like, like s- some other parts of the world, uh, they maybe have it too far the other way. I'm not totally sure about that, but... Um, they, they get arranged to get married. Like, they don't have a choice. They have to learn how to love somebody, right? And it doesn't have to do with sex exactly. It's just you have to learn how to love somebody. And we talk about that, that marriage covenant uh, that, that was created by God, not necessarily the marriage that, that people talk about today, is a commitment, right? It's something that is committed to so that through that commitment, you can learn to love each other so that you can choose to love each other. Um, and it, we kind of have a backwards sometimes because... You know, we see people dating or, or we have this idea in our culture that, you know, I'm going to stick with this person and make sure that that feeling's not going to go away before I ever get committed. I have, to, I have to be close. I have to make sure that that feeling is just right before I can actually decide whether or not that I'm going to love somebody, right? And, and that's kind of a backwards way to think of it. And really, it's just, you know, again, putting that foundation on, on love, a feeling of love instead of actual love, uh, it, it's, things are just going to fall apart, you know? And, uh, you know, sometimes with students when they're younger and they, they are wanting to date and things like that, um, I, I tell them, like, the difference between being good friends and dating is just physical, and, and that's not going to lead anywhere good, you know? Uh, and, and in that sense, uh, you're almost just practicing for divorce if you're, if you're dating at that age and you're not ready or, or you don't know how to set boundaries or things like that. Like, uh, it can be a dangerous place. I saw somebody... Yeah. Oh. So I had, uh, this may be a reiteration. I don't think so. But what has happened uh, to uh, our experiences of interrelational love uh, between a man and a woman is that what's happened is that sex has become the expression of love, whereas it's really only one of many, and it's not even supposed to be the primary one. Um, it's, it's so it, it has so magnified that out of all proportion that societally we can't really see any other avenue to express love except through sex. And um, that's, that's not fair. It's not fair. God has loved us in so many ways. Um, and obviously there's that part that's missing. So uh, obviously there is something more to uh, relationships between people than just physical um, 
love or physical yeah. sex. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that, I can't remember exactly where it was, but I think some, somewhere else in here, uh, Screwtape says that the whole purpose of this, uh, basing this whole thing off of feeling, is to, to keep them from what God actually created it to be. Uh, to keep them from discovering the the unity of the family and the the bond that is actually there and the the intimacy that's in that and the love that comes from from all that. Um, so this next um, this next paragraph here it it talks about uh, the fact that God created this not just in the covenant of marriage but also um, just from from um, from the act of sex becoming one flesh. Right, and 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 it's interesting because he says, uh, Screwtape says, now here comes the joke. <laughs> An enemy described, or the enemy, God described a married couple as one flesh. He did not say a happily married couple, or a couple who married because they were in love. But you can make the humans ignore that. You can also make them forget that the man they called Paul did not confine it to married couples. Mere uh, copulation for him uh, makes one flesh. Right, which basically saying like it's not just like hey I want to marry you, uh, it's it's the copulation, um, is that makes one flesh and and there's something spiritual that God did there and I think that maybe some people understand it more than others, uh, but there's something absolutely spiritual that God does there that that when you are with somebody you become one flesh right and it is meant at the beginning to to be strictly monogamous and and. Um, and and that's what God created it to be, um, and so you know, screw tape is actually kind of like saying this is a joke. Like, how could it possibly be that? Um, you know, it says you can thus get humans to accept rhetorical eulogies of being in love, and quotes um, what were in fact plain descriptions of the real significance of sexual intercourse. Um, yeah, anybody have any thoughts on that or anything else from this? Paragraph. If I don't see you, you can just holler at me. But um, uh, it says the truth is that whatever a man lies, uh, wherever a man lies with a woman, there whether uh, they like it or not, a, a transcend transcendental <laughs> relation. <laughs> is set up between uh, them, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. Um, and, and I think that that's, the, that's obviously the wrong language uh, that is, is being used there because it's, he's talking about it as a punishment. Like because you did this, now you have to either eternally enjoy it or eternally endure it, right? you know? um, which uh, is, is not necessarily exactly the way that God created it to be. Um, sex and they're not in a committed relationship it is eternally endured it can really yeah. eat their soul and when it talks about um you know the the <laughs> the spider eating her groom you know i i see this happening with couples a lot when they're not in a committed relationship and it's just it just rips their heart out i mean it just sort of chips away at your heart when you have these promiscuous relationships and it's it takes a relationship with God, I think, on some mystical way to heal that because it's very destructive. And Satan likes it. I also just want to make a comment. Um, he says the truth is that wherever a man lies with a woman that or there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relationship is set up between them. And so um, when you look at the covenant of marriage, I think what, he, what he's talking about there is that um, kind of like playing off what Joy was saying is that a man and a woman come together and they do become one flesh. And so there is a spiritual component that is involved there that people who are in a promiscuous relationship don't realize how destructive it is to their psyche, you know, their soul. And so um, it's a spiritual act as well as it is a physical act. And like what you were saying, it's within the confines of a monogamous, committed relationship. And so when people walk out of that design that God made for man and woman only, then um, they are miserable because their souls are not at peace because they're spiritual beings. We are spiritual beings and we are designed to be in, the co in a covenant 
like God made with the people of Israel. And so it's very much, the you know, we are the bride of Christ. There's so many analogies there that we could look at, but it is a transcendental thing. It is beyond what the physical realm is, and it is a spiritual act as well as a physical one. And I think that when people walk out of that, they just don't realize it, and they don't, they can't seem to point, you know, put their finger on it, why they're so unhappy and why they're not fulfilled, because they're really not following God's prescription for a, a happy, fulfilled marriage. And we have enough things to uh, contend with as it is, you know, and then you add on top of that being out of the will of God, and it just adds insult to injury. Yeah, I think it really opens up the door for something spiritual to to influence you, uh, darkness to influence you a lot stronger. Um, and uh, and really, what we see of the spiritual world is really such a small glimpse that we really can't actually see everything that happens uh, in, in, in our spiritual selves. I, I do believe that when we come closer to God, uh, that, that he gives us more gifts and through stuff through the Holy Spirit to be able to see some of that stuff. But really, our understanding of the spiritual realm is, is very small compared to what it actually is. And, and I think that we don't focus enough on, uh, you know, when we see problems like that in our lives, we don't think enough, which this book helps a lot with, of this really could be darkness or, or the enemy trying to do this or, or whatever. Uh, Allison. Yeah, so um, to speak to that too, I was thinking um, I had a friend who we grew up in the church together, and she started to have sex with her boyfriend in junior junior year of high school. But there was a lot of stuff that in her past that she hadn't dealt with that she was it was a whole spiritual component of trauma and, and everything that had gone on that she didn't feel secure enough. And so she entered into this relationship. And then several years later, she finds herself um, on the other side of it, out of this relationship. And her now husband, she has to tell him, hey, I've had lots of sex with this guy. And she was worried about how do I enter into this this new marriage with having all of this in the past. And, you know, what was really beautiful is God restored so much spiritually for her that she was able to have intimacy with her husband. uh, And they have, like, an amazing marriage now. So I think, like, yes, people are do make choices and stuff, but our God is also big enough to restore people to health in, in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and another thing that I was thinking of too, um, it's kind of hard to think like of a good example in scripture of a godly marriage. <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of heroes of the faith in scripture, but it's almost easier to find some that had some messed up marriages or messed up. I mean, like, you know, you look at Abraham, like the whole foundation of the, of, of, Israelites and everything like that and, you know, uh, sleeping with the, the servant so that he can have a child and trying to do God's plan his own way. And, and, and you can find a lot of different situations of, you know, you, and, and David, King David and, and, and all this other, and you see things like that, um, you know, and you, it's a good thing that we're saved by grace, you know, <laughs> um, um, and, but you see that kind of stuff and it's, it's like, um, you know, this is giving us an amazing insight into, um, how the enemy really does try to just put those lies in our mind of, of this feelings or facts or whatever. And, and, you know, putting our foundation, uh, putting our, or building our house on the wrong foundation, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, if you, if you still decide to, to sacrifice your own desires and like Paul says, a living sacrifice today, I'm going to die to my own desires today. I'm going to die to what I want to do, my own thoughts and everything like that. And it's going to be a living, I'm going to live a living sacrifice for God today. Um, his grace is still enough, you know, and, and he can restore and make new, uh, in, in spite of all this stuff. So, yeah. Um, so in, in this next section here, he talks about uh, humans can be made to infer the false belief that blend of affection, fear, and desire, uh, which they call being in love, is the only thing that makes marriage either happy or holy. The error is easily pro- uh, easy to produce because being in love does very often precede marriages which are made in obedience to the, God's design. That is within the uh, intention of fidelity. Uh, and then it goes on to say, um, just as religious um, uh, emotion very often, but not always, attends conversion. Uh, and that, that's kind of what I mentioned at the beginning is, oh, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to add something on to the, well, the conversation before. I think uh, 
we're trained in the world to look at everything through psychological dynamics. And so that when the Bible talks about when a man lies with a woman, they become one flesh. That's a spiritual creation. It's like a new creation. And I think we're, we're trained, I mean, especially young people are trained to look at, well, you can enter into these relationships, these sexual relationships, and yeah, there's some psychological effect, but, you know, with the right attitudes, you just get over it and, you know, whatever. Kind of like treat it like just something minor. And I think when God is saying when you do that, there's some kind of spiritual happening that isn't psychological at all. It's not psychological. And I think... When you, when you said that, the, that these relations, the, these becoming one flesh is something to endure, I think there's a real truth to that if you live outside of God's word because that, that spiritual bond, that spiritual mystical thing that happens does not disappear. And it, it, it's like it, it's a real mystery to me how that works or how, how you can get through that. It's, it's not a psychological dynamic at all. And I think, I think, as many things, sometimes it's so, it's so destructive that the only way you can be healed is through God and yeah. not through psychological counseling or any kind of mind games. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Aspen. Just very quickly, I think part of what has gone wrong with our society is that um, somebody has decided to make a science of what goes on in our minds, in our brains, the way we think. I don't know that you can codify that, but they try to do that. So when they talk about something that is, is a, an ill at ease in your mind, it's not a psychological thing. It is the fact that you have done something or intend to do something or, or perhaps are being pushed to do something that you know isn't right. And so what they call psychology is is the attempt to make a person think that uh, what will make them feel better is right. In other words, to get, get to a, a frame of thought that will make them either um, adjust their behavior or, or accept their behavior as that's okay. Now, that's psychology. It's a, we're not psychological beings. We're, we're physical, spiritual, and mental beings, but we're not psychological per se. Uh, just everybody has to has to come to the terms of understanding their purpose and God's purpose, and and then you don't have psychological issues. I mean that's probably a a real cut and dried, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Short of it, but anyhow. You want to ask him? Did you have something to share? Yeah, just kind of what Mark was talking about. Um, so a few years ago, unfortunately, after, you know, we were married, not unfortunately, but past teenage years, you know, I was informed of this and had a, a completely different perspective put on us that we're going to try to instill in our children. And, you know, I'm actually reading a book about it right now. Um, and they said exactly the same thing. There was no courthouse that you would go down and get a marriage license. There was no such thing as a marriage license, you know, when God intended marriage and intended, you know, sex for a husband and a wife. It was a blood covenant. Your marriage was when you had sex with that person, you were married to them under God's eyes. It was a blood covenant that he created. And that's why there's that one flesh. That's why that connection exists. And there is no explaining that. There is no piece of paper that you can get rid of. There is no... You know, you do have to go to God for that restoration. It is a blood covenant with him and that other person, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, it is. And so if you don't have God to restore that or to break those chains and those soul ties with that person, you're stuck with enduring forever. So that kind of yeah. made it make sense to me. And, and, and we're going to teach our kids that, you know, the first person you're with, I mean, you're married to them in God's eyes. So think twice about who that's going to be. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, the, the state has kind of taken something that belonged to God and, and kind of made it their own, and it really is not the same effect. And I think that, that you know, students should be taught the, the gravity 
and the importance of, of the, uh, the biblical covenant of marriage. Um, and, and understand that it's a deep thing. It's a heavy thing. Uh, and it's real. And, and back to the enduring thing, because this popped in my mind while you're saying that. Um, I, I do think there's truth to that in, inside, of a, inside of a godly marriage as well. Like there are times that you, you need to choose to endure right? Uh, there, there might be times that you're frustrated or <laughs> can I get an amen? Um, there, there are times that you, and, and so, and it's something that it's like, it's like, it's not like the in, in enduring is being put on you. It's a different thing, whether something's being pushed on you versus something it's you're choosing to do yourself. It's a completely different attitude, right? And so in, in both senses of that, no matter what, it, it is endurance or enjoyment or, you know, so, uh, Allison. Uh, so I want to address two things. <laughs> so one thing is that I do think that we are whole people, that we are not just physical or spiritual, that we do have emotions, mental, uh, social, ethical. It's We're a whole person. And so God can restore any of that through doctors, through counselors, through uh, many different avenues. So I think that it's, it's okay if people do have issues that need further work in their brain and their minds because they may not be able to fully comprehend. And then another thing, um, sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought. Um, uh, dang it. <laughs> I had it and it was there. Um, okay, so we were talking about you being married to the person when, okay, yeah. So I think that we have to be careful as Christians not to shame people who may not have grown up with any of this, right? And they're listening to the world. And I think a lot of times we can be like, oh, it's right or wrong. But they're like, I think that we have in the church specifically a culture of shame that is not okay for people who um, are living in sin because we're all sinners, you know? And, and like teen moms, like we're quick to say, oh, she's a slut. Like, that's just not okay. You know, like she's already hurting. She's already like, like, what do I do? And so I think that we have to be careful as Christians that we're not like, this is the way because there is, it is the way we know that, but we have to approach it not based on shame. Yeah. And I even think that, that because she is also a spiritual being, um, she also understands that it's not exactly what was created for her. And maybe she's not able to verbalize that, but uh, yeah, Roy. There's also the aspect of that when we are created, we are given the knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. And when you sin, the conviction in our heart happens. And we have to understand that Satan has been very effective in getting us to sin. That's why it's so important to love God with all of my heart, all of my mind, and all of my soul. And the second is to love our neighbor, our understanding that Satan has effectively um, um, got that person to sin and recognize that they need the love of God so that we can be a support to turn them and help them turn back to God. But the number one effect, when man sins, it is built in him right from the beginning that he has sinned, and he knows it. Uh, and we have to learn how to effectively reach out and touch lives to bring them back to the Lord and love them. Yeah, it's, it's done through love. It can't be done without love. Yeah. Let me take a few moments on that. Um, I, I think it's very important that we understand, like, we, we need to have a culture in the church that it's not, the church isn't a place for perfect people. It's a hospital for the sick and broken, right? And so we need to understand that um, it, it's not our place to, to necessarily bring judgment or anything like that. Um, 
And, and so, like, for the teenagers, I, I say it like this. Like, I don't want you ever to be embarrassed because you invite your friend to church and they might cuss when they're here, right? I don't want you ever to be like, well, I can't bring them into church because they're going to say things that are inappropriate or whatever, and so I'm just not going to invite them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, because if you're, if you're in this culture of church and, like, everyone's, like, oh, like, always judging each other about, like, you shouldn't be doing this or you shouldn't be doing that or whatever or this person was this or that, like, they're going to be, like, you know, whatever. And so there's, there's two things that are really important. Um, first of all, I don't think it's our, like when it comes to somebody that's not in relationship with Jesus, I don't think it's our responsibility to bring judgment on them. It's our, it's our responsibility to reach out with them with the love of Christ so that they can see who God is and then have the ability to accept him for themselves and experience that love as well. And then also, um, I, I, I do think that scripture does say some things about like people who are in the church who are claiming to be Christians. It's our job to keep each other accountable though. Um, and, and so that would be in the sense of, you know, Paul, Paul like uh, an extreme case of that would be something like Paul explains of if somebody is claiming to be a Christian and living a godly life, but they are also teaching things that are contrary to scripture, they do not belong in the church, right? And so it's obviously you have to do some judging for that to that conclusion to be made, right? And, and so there is a balance there. Um, so we cannot be so pushy against and judgment against that kind of stuff what is that, that people who don't even know Christ are, are going to have a bad picture of the church and not want to be invited to church or show up or, or, or whatever. Um, but at the same time, we also need to hold ourselves accountable and we need to hold each other accountable. Um, and, and, and another part of that inside of the church is when somebody among us is dealing with a problem, we don't cut them off immediately and just say, I can't believe you did that. You don't need to come to church anymore because what, like, what a terrible moment in their life for them to be cut off from God's love, you know, that's all around them, right? And, and here's the thing, like, there's, there's probably, you know, people in here that have, have been, been saved for a very long time and have probably gone through times where they've had a great relationship with Jesus and had times where they've messed up. And, and the whole time they're, they're learning and they're experiencing God's love and, and God's grace is having to be poured out over them. Um, but it makes it a whole lot easier to get over a problem that you're dealing with when you're not afraid to tell somebody else in the body of Christ, hey, I'm struggling with this and I need help. Right? We have to be a, an incredible support group for each other. And, and the same amount of grace that God gives you, we should be able to offer to other people. Right? And so there's a, a, an incredible balance that we have to walk with that kind of stuff. And, and I think it leans heavily on the side of love and grace. Right? Um, and, and so we have to be careful of that. And we have to um, really be conscious of that in the church. Because again, if somebody is struggling with something in the church, even though they are a Christian, even though they do love Jesus, if somebody is struggling with something, what they need most is the church that's around them. What they need most is the people that, that are the most supportive and that are the best example of God's love and, and everything uh, to, to be with them and support them. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and obviously there's a boundary line with that. You know, if people are in leadership of the church and there's something going on, they probably need to take a step back from leadership but that doesn't mean they need to leave the church, you know. They they probably shouldn't be, you know, um, you know. If there's something big going on, there's there's balances with that. Like I said, but but again, we need to heavily lean on the side of love and grace, uh, especially when we're talking about what God's love really is, you know. Um, so so the next part in this that I, that I wanted to uh, come back to, um, he's talking about. Um, how, the, how being in love, the feeling of being in love often precedes marriage uh, and, and the good feelings and all this stuff. It says, just as religious emotion very often but not always attends uh, uh, conversion. In other words, the humans are to be encouraged to regard as the basis for marriage a highly colored and distorted version of something that the enemy really promise, promises as its result. Um, so a couple things here. In the exact same way, that, like I said before, that somebody would base the feeling of spirituality on whether or not they need a relationship with Jesus. Uh, we need to make sure that we understand that as well. Um, in the same way, when it comes to uh, unity and loving each other and our spouse and everything like that in marriage, it's the same way in our relationship with Christ. Eventually, we are going to marry Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Um, and so in the church, again, if we base our spiritual foundation off of feelings rather than actual facts, 
Um, it's it's going to be rocky. It's going to not be good. And I think another thing is this, and, and some of you who have been Christians for a long time understand this more, and I think that younger people have a hard time with this, but you're going to go through times in your life where you know, you might you might verbalize it like this, like, man, I God is just, like, I'm going through such a dry season right now, right? Or, or God hasn't spoke to me in, in this long, or, or I used to feel like this during worship, and now I'm not. Well, just because you don't have that feeling doesn't mean that God's not worthy to be worshiped. Just because you're not, like, you know, crying at the altar doesn't mean that, that God isn't God anymore, right? And in that same way, in our relationship with him, when we choose to be committed with him, when we give our lives to him, when we enter that covenant with him, it is our job to enjoy and endure through that in our relationship with God as well. And I think that's something that, that people don't understand well enough sometimes. And like I said, if you've been a Christian a long time, you know that. Like there are times in your life where God has done amazing things. And there are times in your life where, where you can either choose to be content with your relationship with God, or you can get frustrated because you don't have that feeling that you were trying to find at the beginning. You know what I'm saying? And so in that same way, I, I just want to encourage you guys in, in the sense of um, even though you may not be having those feelings. God may not be like showing up in the way that you want, or you have to be careful when you start thinking like that, or they didn't play that song I really liked during worship today, or, or I just want to feel this or whatever. That's not really what it's about, right? Love is a choice in our relationship with God as well, right? And it's, it's, it's always given from God, and, and we need to choose to love him no matter what. Anyways, and I always verbalize it like this. If, if Jesus dying on the cross for my sins at the end of the day, is Jesus dying on the cross for my sins enough for me to give my life to him? Or do I need to feel too? Do I need him to do miracles through me? Do I need him to do whatever, this or that, right? Do I need to always have uh, an emotional time during worship or, or feeling or whatever, right? At the end of the day, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and pouring his grace out, pouring his blood out for us, that's enough for us to worship him for the rest of eternity, right? So, um, yeah. Uh, anything else? Uh, we're kind of at the last paragraph here. Any any few closing things or thoughts? Yes. I think it's really indicative of God's grace, and I think He has that there for us to realize. Because you're right, it, our relationship with God sort of parallels our relationship with our spouse, and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. But there's a commitment there. But just the fact that none of them were that great, and God had this amazing grace and died for all of us and those people too. Yeah, he still, he still used them to do amazing things, right? Even though they were, and, and that's the whole thing. Like, like it says, I can't remember exactly where it is. Like even in the midst of our sin, that's when Jesus died for us, right? That's when he did that. And, and, and I've had struggles in my own life that, that like even in the midst of like me making mistakes or whatever and, and saying, God, I, I don't want to struggle with this anymore or whatever, um, you know, God would still use me in those moments. And, and I would say, why? Why would you choose to use me even though I'm, I'm making these stupid decisions? And, and, and I feel like I'm, you know, stuck with these decisions that, that are hard for me. I was really struggling with some stuff. And, um, but at the same time, God is like, I'm, I'm still love you anyways, and I'm still going to use you. You know, as long as you're still asking, I'm still going to use you. As long as you're still here with me, I'm going to use you, right? And so uh, there is a lot of grace uh, in, in that. Yeah. So what it boils down to is uh, we try to make this all about us and our relationship with him, but it's really all about him and his relationship with us and mm -hmm. what, he, what he intends to have of us, not what we expect to be to him. Yeah. Um, one more thing that he mentions in here um, is talking about um, where he says, in the first uh, two advantages follow in the first place. Humans who do not have the gift of uh, continence can be deterred from seeking marriage as a solution because they do not find themselves in love. Uh, and again, that's a uh, an advantage to the enemy. Uh, well, if I'm not in love, then you know, then it's not worth it. It's, marriage is not worth it or whatever. Um, and then the very, very last uh, sentence here says, love will be held to excuse a man from all the guilt and to protect him from all the consequences of marrying uh, a heathen, a fool, or wanton. Uh, and then he says, but more of this uh, in my next. Um, and, and so again, he's just really kind of signing this off uh, with... Um, 
all of this is we're trying to base this all off of this, this crazy feeling of love that everybody's trying to seek after. And, and because of this, you know, um, this is what's going to happen. You know, people are going to have, um, you know, everything they need to be able to just drop out whenever they want. Everything they need to say, I don't, I don't love anymore, so it's not worth it, right? I don't love this or whatever. You know, I, I just want the feeling, so what's the point in this? Well, like, I might as well just go after the feeling than this, this covenant of marriage. And, 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 and this is the whole thing. The reason that the enemy is doing this is because God created marriage to be a representation of our relationship with him, and there's amazing things that come out of this relationship, right? And, and this whole idea. And God has amazing things, uh, uh, benefits and, and awesome stuff, like through the unity of a family and, and, and all this kind of stuff and having children and loving children and children being dependent on parents, all the stuff that was talked about here. Uh, God has all this stuff offered. And the enemy does not want us to realize the love that God has for us through all of these things that God created, through sex, through marriage and commitment and, and, and all this other kind of stuff. So, uh, Let's go ahead and I don't know what time Pastor Scott usually goes to, but this seems like a good time. So <laughs> um, let's go ahead and, and pray. And then uh, let me pray for us and then we can be dismissed. Lord, uh, I thank you for this uh, night, this perspective that you've put in our minds and our hearts. I pray that we would always be able to continue conversations like this uh, amongst each other. God, we just thank you so much for who you are. We worship you in this moment uh, and, and, and praise, praise to your name and praise to who you are uh, for the love that you've shown us and also the love that you offer us to give to other people. Uh, Lord, we thank you for that. I pray that you would just fill us with love. I pray that you would um, uh, destroy lies in our own minds, in our society. God, that the closer that we are to you, we would be able to speak truth, uh, not only for our own lives, God, but I pray that you would let us, after we've seen the truth, be able to... to uh, confidently tell other people about what real love is and, and who you are, Lord. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right. You guys have a good night. We will see you Sunday.